so much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the founder and CEO of Audigent, Drew Stein. Audigent is one of the bellwether companies that's really driving the conversation around data and first-party data in particular forward for our industry. They are a prominent and proud partner of ours here at Advertising Week, and we'll look forward to seeing Audigent led, as always, by the resplendent Dave Rosner and his team at Advertising Week come mid-October in the Lower East Side. But today is about you, Drew, and it's a chance to have a real conversation with a guy who has founded a number of businesses. We're going to talk about all of them. But Drew, I'd love to start with you by talking about your charitable work, uh, which really jumped off the page when our crack Great Minds research team was doing their digging. And that's the work that you do as the chairman and president of the Harriet Nesteban Vicente Foundation. And I'd love to start there. We'll get into all the business and all the exciting stuff happening at Autogent, of course. But can we start, instead of the head, start with the heart? Sure. I mean, it's an absolute privilege any opportunity anyone gets to be a part of a charitable foundation. And uh, for me, it was a lifelong journey. And running a, a you know uh Harriet and Esteban's foundation is an absolute labor of love. I, I'm very fortunate. I uh grew up with Harriet and Esteban in my life. He was a grandfather figure for me. I grew up uh in the back of his studio uh learning about creativity. Um and when I think about what influenced me to actually even get here in advertising, my first love was the creative side of advertising. And I first fell in love uh you know, with that creative side uh, as a boy running around in the in the back of an artist's studio. Uh, and it's something that's influenced me. So now it's an absolute joy to be able to uh, run that foundation. This summer, we had two um, massive exhibitions, uh, 150 plus painting exhibitions with Esteban Vicente and Joaquim Soroya. Uh, Wall Street Journal just did a great review of it uh last week actually and uh at the there's, there's in the u.s the exhibition is at the parish museum and uh it's at the esteban vicente museum uh, outside of madrid in in spain in segovia and it's uh, a, a a fantastic opportunity to to give back i spend most of my time focused on for-profit uh endeavors and to have an outlet in my life that is so personally you know connecting on so many levels has, has been, a, as I shared, it's a joy and a privilege to to be able to give back to the arts, um, you know, and some of the other charitable causes that we take up at the, the foundation. And Drew, if there's a, a thread that runs across your career, it's that intersection of creativity and technology. Uh, is that a good take about you? If we were doing your epitaph, which uh, God willing, we won't be doing for many <laughs> years, <laughs> would that be a good a good phrase to start with? It's left, right, uh, you know, it's left, right brain. Uh, you know, it, it absolutely is. Um, I have, 
um, I've had a, a an exciting career. And when I think about how it started, um, I got an internship. I was just really lucky. I lucked into it. I uh, was 18 years old. I was in college. I applied for an internship. I got an internship at Elias Arts, uh, which was on the creative side of advertising in music. And I I fell in love with advertising uh, right then and there at 18 years old. And I'm, I'm really fortunate to have kind of found you know, my passion so early. Um, that summer, I learned about an industry I never knew about. I I became an ad guy that summer. Um, and even though my first job, ironically, out of school was on Wall Street, I was an investment banking analyst uh, for CS First Boston. It never left me. And when I think about how I got here and, and why I've played on both sides, I think it was it was that first... Uh, my first love and my first job experience, right? As an analyst on, uh, you know, in investment banking, it was all about analytics, finance, investment, accounting. It was really math driven, and I loved it. And it allowed me to get a boot camp, and, you know, a real great foundation in business. Um, but then ultimately, in my my mid twenties and late twenties, I came back to the creative side. And when you think about having a career. Um, where you can have your cake and eat it, you know, the opportunity to, to explore both sides of your brain. That's what I've been able to do, right? One side of you know, the media and technology side is, is, is that analytical math driven mind. And uh, the creative side is, uh, you know, you know, is all about the kind of my first love and, and, you know, my gut passion and uh, you know, for being an ad guy. Great, great story. Uh, let's talk about something that what we both did as young men, and that's internships and how important those experiences are and that they stay with you. Here we are all these years later. Was that when you were at Northwestern or was that another? Was school? that Northwestern? Yeah. So talk about that because I'm, I'm a big, I went to Emory. I was, did a lot of internships at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, whatever minor degree of success I've had. In my mind, I go right back to those early experiences. Uh, agreed. And and we take it one step further in, at Autogent because mentorship is a huge part of our culture. And when we think about, you know, the award we won this year from Fast Company as being one of the top 10 most innovative workplaces, um, mentorship plays a huge role in that. We have a very unusual culture and it's led by our chief people officer, Scott Elias, uh, who was the guy that hired me when I was 18 years old. So internships are really critical and they come full circle. Not only was I an intern there, but I came back to be the chief operating officer of Elias in my early 20s. So I went from intern to COO and chief growth officer. I wound up using my investment banking skills to you know, complete the leverage buyout of that business. Scott and I became lifelong friends. Uh, and he became not just a mentor in that moment, but a lifelong mentor of mine. And he was one of the very first people to write a check when we did the friends and family round of Autogen. And then when COVID hit, he went from just being my mentor to mentoring a, not just a few people at the company, but the whole company and eventually coming on as our chief people officer, um, where we have productivity and positivity sessions. We have group meetings on Friday. Uh, which is a big part of our culture. And, you know, we have uh, even individual mentoring sessions with Scott. And so we made that a cornerstone 
of our culture. So from all the way back at Northwestern and 18 years old, not only did I learn that lesson, but the deep relationship and bond that I specifically built with Scott has been seminal in uh, forging the culture the and really the unique relationships that our teams have within Autogen as well. Now that is a genuine great story. So let's stay where you were, which is culture. We've had a very tough time the last few years maintaining culture. You saw something in the press, I'm sure uh, we all saw it, about uh, Mary Barr and General Motors really getting raked over the coals, but good for wanting to bring back workers three days a week, three days of your choice. Evidently, it was a poor choice to send it out on a Friday afternoon. And again, we all read the same press. To me, three days a week is pretty light uh, and sort of feels like everybody's winning. Talk about your take on this. There's no hotter topic uh, outside of technology than the whole return to work, work-life balance conversation. Give us your take on that, Drew. It's, it's a very rich, multi-layered, complicated yeah. topic. Well, Matt, like you, I come from a time where you know, if you didn't come in on, on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. Right. And, you know, that's how I cut my teeth, you know, in, in this business. And, and so forget five days a week. I, you know, I'm, I was used to a even longer work week that doesn't exist anymore. And uh, I think that's a good thing. I think that um, for us, it's very hard to make an argument to our employees that we have to be there in person all the time. We 10 X our business you know, from, you know, from 2020 to, to, you know, 2020, 2021. And that's what propelled us in the Inc 5,000 this year to be the 17th fastest growing company in New York and 29 fastest software company. And um, that for us was all done completely decentralized and um, from home, uh, we found a way very quickly to make culture the cornerstone whether uh, you know of our of our company and figured out a way to do it from remote um we never pivoted as a company but we certainly pivoted culturally you know during covid and the dividends were huge we learned a new way to work we learned a new way to be productive we learned a new way to focus on results and i'm I, you know we have not made it mandatory to come back to work i personally go back three four days a week um, but we haven't made it mandatory for, for everyone else. In fact, we've doubled down and we have now gone to unlimited PTO for all of our employees as well. We're results driven. We're a meritocracy. We're still very much an entrepreneurial organization, even though we've grown to a, a hundred people already uh, and expect to grow significantly more over the you know next 12 to 18 months. Uh, but But having that kind of decentralized, very flat hierarchy where you run fast and are very results oriented can be achieved, uh, you know, when you are working from remote. So for us, um, it, it, uh, it certainly impacted us, but it's, you know, I can't push my employees with a straight face because the truth is we're continuing even in the midst of a, you know, a, a recession and, and media spend pressures that's out there. We're having a great year. We are growing uh, significantly year over year. And compared to our, uh, you know, uh, you know, the other companies in, in ad tech and in, within media, having, an, you know, still an incredible run here. So it sounds like you have found 
a different pathway to put culture front and center uh, and continue to make it a priority irrespective of where your people are. Uh, are you surprised, Drew, as part of you when you lay awake at night, say, I can't believe this has worked as well as it has. I know I sure feel that way. There's no doubt. I, um, I'm thankful for every moment that, um, you, know, you know, that I've had here on this run. Uh, and frankly, in my career, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've had successes. I've had failures. Um, this has been a rocket ship unlike anything else. This feels different. Autogen's felt different from day one. Um, we've had a very clear vision for the product. We've had a very clear path. Um, we got lucky on some of the, you know, some of the timing of the announcements, like the deprecation of third-party cookies uh, and some of the regulations that changed that really leveled the playing field uh, for us. Uh, we picked the right lane uh, at the right time, uh, and that part feels lucky to me. Uh, so for that, I'm extremely grateful. But on the flip side, we also have built an amazing team. And running flat, running hard, and empowering the people that we have uh, with the responsibilities that you know we give to them, that's that's good execution. Um, and for that, uh, I'm I'm grateful that we we have such a great team. But my hats off to everyone on it for executing as hard as they have. Um, so I think you know I feel lucky for two reasons. Um, you know, and 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 uh, those are the things that I think about in terms of what what keep at night. You know, the things that I'm grateful for. How did we even get here? Well, your luck is the residue of design. I mean, that's really the Audigent story here is not just pure luck. This is not just hitting a number in Vegas luck. This is a, a lot of planning and thought. And as you said, assembly of a very, very talented team. Yeah. And, and fundamentally, it was time that data was disrupted, right? It was time for the good guys to win finally in, in ad tech for so long. Uh, ad tech in particular, uh, and programmatic had been a sector that had, you know, different shades and, um, and had developed quite a bit of a, a reputation and, at, you know, for a lack of, uh, you know, consumer privacy. And that was unfortunately earned. I think the opportunity to come in and say, hey, we're going to be a virtuous company. We're going to be the good guys. And there's actually a way that everyone can win moving forward. That was a, a message that people might have scoffed at five years ago when we thought of our company. But today, the only companies that are going to be here in the future are the ones that are virtuous, the ones that are focused on consumer privacy, right? We said, we're going to put the consumer in the center of our value chain and build an ecosystem around it, not the other way around. And we're going to make sure that the, the content creators win and we're going to make sure that the brands win as well. And that's just been a very different outlook from day one. So for us being virtuous and creating the uh, opportunity for the good guys to finally win in this business has been, uh, in, you know, an, an important uh, differentiator. It's certainly what's made us unique. I remember we were pitching one client, and uh, she was the CMO of a of a major part major uh, sports uh, conglomerate, and she laughed and she goes, "So you guys are the virtuous data company?" Um, and she kind of it was uh, we wound up getting the business, but. She hadn't quite heard a pitch like that before. And, um, you know, and it's certainly 
a moniker that we were more than happy to, you know, to have associated with a brand like Autogen. Let's stay here for a second, because you said some things that are really interesting, Drew. And that's timing and structural changes in the industry that created more of a level playing field. Let's talk about that a little bit deeper, because that's a that's a big enchilada right there. 100%. I mean, we are living through the single most disruptive change in the ad tech ecosystem, certainly in my career. Um, and, you know, what I would say is that the deprecation of third party cookies, now maids and IP address all at the same time, plus the change in uh, regulatory uh, environment with GDPR and CCPA and now other, uh, you know, certainly other states coming on board and the changes in the browsers as well, um, where um, attribution tracking has been pretty much obliterated, right? All of these things happening at the same time have been just absolutely disruptive, right? We're not talking about the deprecation of third-party cookies here. We're talking about the deprecation of the DMP segment as we know it. And with the DMP segment, we know it, the ability to address open exchange inventory. So as the DMP segment goes, right, so does the ability to address open exchange inventory. So we're many, you know, certainly many circles are talking about the death of open exchange inventory as well right now. And the truth is there is a better path forward. There's an old way and there's a new way. And, and the truth is, there's a better way. And all of this disruption has opened the path and opportunity for companies to come in and say, we've got to find, you know, a new way forward. We've got to find a new way to think about consumer privacy and respect it. We've got to find a new way to think about targeting and scaling campaigns. And we've got to find it a new way to create value for all the stakeholders. And make no mistake about it, there are three equal stakeholders. There's the consumer, there's the content creator, right? The publishers, and there's the media buying and buyers and brands. And all three of them are critical stakeholders. So yes, it's very disruptive, but the opportunity to reimagine how data gets transacted and how inventory gets addressed is a it's a tremendous opportunity for our industry to finally get it right, right? For us to finally have this watershed moment to, you know, to, to look at privacy, to look at how we transact and to say, there's a better path forward. And by the way, it's going to work for everybody. So, um, and I think we're at that moment. Um, I, I know we're at that moment because we're seeing it work day in and day out. I mean, we're seeing it not theoretically work. We are going to ship over a hundred million dollars worth of our core product over the next 12 months. And we are seeing it in action at scale, delivering for all three stakeholders day in and day out. And, and that's, you know, that's where, I, you know, that's why, um, you know, I, I think makes this a very unique point in time. So Audigent has a, distinct, and I like that word, virtuous approach. Part of what's happening in this crowded, convoluted data ecosystem that we're in right now that's evolving faster, way faster than the pace of change way back when Gordon Moore dictated, 
Um, is there some, I'll call it greenwashing, it's not the right word, but I can't think of the right word. And one of the things that we've touched on here is that notion of a clean room, and it might not be as clean as everybody thinks. Get your take on that, Drew. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Yes, greenwashing, I totally get where you're going with, with that concept. And there's probably needs to be an equivalent uh, for, for ad tech. Uh, you know, clean washing maybe uh, is uh, is our equivalent. And yes, I mean, I, I think the concept of calling something a clean room is a terrific marketing feat. Uh, so kudos to the creator of that. It's awesome marketing. But the practice, um, right, where it is is not as clean today as it could be in the future, right? We're we're talking about replacing an encrypted identifier, the cookie, which we all know is is not flawed, frankly, in its intention. The intention of creating an anonymized encrypted identifier that would be put into the bid stream actually was was originally a good intention around protecting consumer privacy. The execution where everyone started hosting matching tables and tying it back to people's PII was what made it really uh, consumer unfriendly. And uh, you know, the execution of it, you know, frankly, just missed the mark and it wound up being bad for consumers in the end. Anytime you're tying people's personal information without proper consent, anytime you're broadcasting people's private information into the bitstream, that's not good, right? That's fundamentally bad for consumer privacy. And, you know, when we think about where we could go with, with this, um, we could get to a better place, but the the cookie started off, and you know, with a with a, a decent concept, um, but the the execution of it um, failed. And now we're looking at clean rooms, as you know, as certainly that's a hot topic in the industry. But how is it that replacing an encrypted identifier with people's actual PII? Right. We went from hosting matching tables around encrypted identifiers to literally lining up side by side people's personal information. Now, somehow, because this takes place in the cloud, this is not, uh, you know, this is not, you know, or outside of the eye of, of you know, the regulatory bodies. We've kind of pushed it to, you know, a, a black box that somehow that this is good for the consumer. I guess I don't see it yet. I think um, I think it's rife with challenge that if I were a CMO, I would be up at night wondering, like, would I really want that printed on the cover of the Wall Street Journal that I'm I'm in? You know, I've got a clean room technology that lines up people's PII with other people's PII, and then out of that somehow magically comes a clean output that I can action in a media campaign. Now, not everyone actions it that way. Some people are doing it the right way. Some people are are looking at purely cognitive insights, purely predictive audiences. And we think that's a good practice, right? When clean rooms are used the right way, they hold tremendous promise. When clean rooms are used the wrong way, it's actually a step backward for our industry, not a step forward. What's your take on the leadership of the industry right now? I would submit that the industry has sort of blown the opportunity to self-regulate itself. 
and between the flawed design of things that may have been well-intentioned as you just referred to that also assumes altruism and good intentions and we know that not everyone is altruistic or has good intention you know it was jarring several years ago when we had the producer and the lead whistleblower from the great hack on our stage with jeff goodby and when you look at what happens to our information where it ends up in that particular case and i'm not a conspiracy theorist anything but but you know that russia has all of our voting data can't be good right give us your take on the industry leadership in self-regulation and where we are and how we got there you have a very unique take on this drew well listen i think i think the iab um and the iab tech lab are are doing an excellent job overall and i also think that pre-bid uh is doing a very good job but what you know i i can't say the same for all organizations i mean um, what I would say is that we have a lot of self-interested parties that sit on a lot of these organizations that, that are on top of the industry. Everybody has a horse in this race and everybody wants to win the race as well. And that's a challenge when people put their company's self-interests uh, and their own agendas ahead of the overall industry, we wind up exactly where the industry is. Now, the biggest challenge with this, of course, is that ad tech is not a knowledge base that is um, is really well known, right? You just don't wake up one day and know a lot about programmatic advertising. It takes years to learn all, even the acronyms, SSP, DMP, DSP, right? CDP, CMP, right? They're like CRM. I mean, they're SEO. We are an industry filled with acronyms, a massive loom escape. It's very confusing. And the challenge is that a lot of the regulatory bodies just don't understand our business. So what winds up happening when is what we see in GDPR and CCPA is when they don't really understand the details, we see these broad brushes uh, getting back to you know, Esteban Vicente, right? You and, and painting, right? There's broad brushes on canvas and there's small, you know, brush strokes. And we're at a point in our kind of regulatory evolution that they're painting with really big rollers at this point. And none of that's good. But a lot of that is because we have not done a great job of self-regulating. And, and that's just happens to start from, frankly, the very top, right? It starts with the Googles and Facebooks of the world, right? And Apples of the world. And then it works its own way on down. And we still have silos that are massively self-interested that are having an oversized influence, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's a lot of litigation going on right now around the kind of monopolistic practices of some of these silos and some of the, the you know, anti-competitive practices, but it starts at the, the very biggest companies and it works its way down. There's a lot of people who are betting on their horse and doing everything possible to rig the race. Yeah, when you've got, uh, you know, some players like that that have such an enormous voice and you couple that with uh, huge lobbying operations in D.C., and then, you know, we've all watched the same things when you'll have one of these televised hearings, you know, where they'll 
drag the leaders of the big Silicon Valley players in front of Congress. And you've got a guy like Chuck Grassley, who's give or take, you know, 85 and may or may not still have AOL dial up, you know, asking questions. And I'm always amazed at how poorly prepared they are by their staffs. I mean, the lack of 101 level knowledge by our senators in particular, uh, who seem much more interested, and I'm not picking on either party here, both Democrats and Republicans, much more interested in the theatricality of the hearing than any actual understanding of what it is that they're going to try and regulate is just, it's like, I wouldn't go out tonight. I'm going to the ball game. I wouldn't try to pitch, you know, for the Mets. I can't do that. <laughs> and, I, and I wouldn't try. Right. Um, and that's what we're seeing right now. And that's why, you know, you know, do I think that the, the pendulum is going to swing too far? Yes. Um, because they don't have enough knowledge and there is kind of theatrics. People are, are, are ringing the, the bell on data privacy. And that's a good thing, frankly, but are they going to overregulate? Yes. That's, that's going to happen. Um, I think a lot of innovation is going to come out of that, frankly, around, around areas like contextual uh around um probabilistic modeling uh i think there's going to be a lot of um you know certainly around cognitive data predictive audiences there are a lot of privacy and consumer friendly ways to think about what the future can be and i think we'll continue to make huge strides but the you know the notion that we could get to a point where there's so much regulation where advertising frankly just doesn't work um you know I don't think we're going to get all the way there. I don't think it's going to, you know, I, I think at some point we have to pull it back a little bit to make sure that, like I said, there's three stakeholders, everyone's got to win. And we can't go to a time where we were many years ago, where we were like half the internet's fake. You just don't know which half is fake. So you just have to throw money at it. Right. And then Double Verify and IAS and Moat and the verification platforms did a great job of shining that light on what's real human traffic and what's not real human traffic. You know, I don't think we're going back to a place where verification platforms are not going to work. There's going to be zero targeting and and that regulatory bodies are just going to say, well, guys, we're going back to the old days. So, you know, get your blow torches out, get ready to light your money on fire. I, I don't think that's going to happen either. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, and I like where you position Autogent to navigate this pathway forward, convoluted and complex as it may be. Drew, one of the things we touched on up at the top was you're a founder and that's a unique DNA set. You founded Dashbit way back when station way back when where did that come from were your parents entrepreneurial uh, we talked about internships but where do you think that constitution uh which not everybody has comes from yeah my father was an entrepreneur i i grew up uh you know uh watching him grow his business um you know they uh they celebrated uh 50 years in in business i i watched him build a business from nothing I watched a lot of ups and downs, uh, and I watched ultimate success, and and um, and it's something that I lived and breathed around the dinner table. Um, so I was very fortunate 
to have grown up with an incredible role model in my father who kind of said, you know, showed the way of what being an entrepreneur was about. And, and I went into it with wise, eyes wide open, right? I, I can remember the good times. I can remember the hard times, you know, and I saw the good, bad, and ugly um, in, in terms of what it's like to start your own company. Um, but, you know, for me, um, it didn't deter me at all. Um, it, it propelled me to, you know, and gra I gravitated towards it. Fantastic story. Uh, 50 years. What was, what was your dad's business? I, it was a wealth management company. 50 years. God bless. Yeah. So let's dig a little deeper on Audigent and that growth trajectory. You're about, give or take, seven, eight years old, about 2016. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really five years into revenue. So we're, this is our fifth year of revenue, really six years old. Yeah. Okay. So pretty young in the life of a company, but on a very high growth trajectory. What's, you know, your biggest challenge, Drew? And what's your biggest area of opportunity as you, as an entrepreneur, manage growth? Biggest challenge always is going to be around finding the best people. Uh, and um, giving them the opportunity to excel. That, that to me is front and center when I think about what propels us to success and what holds us back. It's completely the teams and the leadership that we have on those teams. Like we live and die, uh, not just by our technology, right? We can have the best AI and ML. Uh, we can have the greatest tech stack in the world. When you have a company growing that quickly uh, in an in a industry as dynamic as ad tech is, uh, and specifically data tech, you, you better have a, a team of leaders that know how to catch a tiger by the tail. Um, and that's a skill set. And I and I think that it's uh um you know that's the I think that you know for for me the the biggest challenge, it's finding great people. And, uh, and, and being able to create the opportunity for them to really flex and, you know, have this be a home for them to have that best moment in their careers as well. So when it comes for, you know, when it comes to where are the biggest opportunities, um, curation for us, that there's an old way and a new way. The new way is better. Um, open exchange inventory. Uh, and data the old way, which is through the buy side, is shifting. Data is shifting to the sell side, and the vanilla pipe of inventory is not, you know, is not what it used to be. We have the opportunity now to apply data to the supply path to optimize it and make inventory smarter than it's ever been. And so the opportunities to and we're we're just a couple years into this shift from the data being applied from the buy side to data now being applied to the sell side, and and that shift is unstoppable because we've now proven over and over again it's more efficient for the media buyers and it performs better. And ultimately, if it's cheaper and it's better, it's going to win in the end, right? Buy side algorithms are are very very good at picking what's performing the best for the 
best value for that client. And there's no better way to deliver for a brand or media agency partner when it comes to data than delivering it through the supply path and delivering it as a, as a deal idea, as a PMP, a private marketplace attached to, to the inventory that can be optimized versus the old way, which is the shotgun approach of having a DMP segment and using the DSP to exchange open to address open exchange inventory. And as you touched on, consumers went along the way. Consumers went along the way because the connections that you can have from publisher to SSP are much more consumer friendly and privacy centric than have than looking at data through, you know, the buy side, the data through the buy side model counts and relies on hosting matching tables, right? That means everyone's got to play a game of go fish. Permission to use data is moving away from the point of aggregation. The old way used to aggregate data here, use it on 50,000 websites there, and everyone hosted matching tables to enable that. That's going away. If you want to champion the consumer, then you need two sets of permissions. You need permission at the point of aggregation and you need permission at the point of impression. When you have both sides, and, and I think that's one of the things that CCPA and GDPR get right. Like, let's make sure that people are consenting, not just here, but on both sides of the equation. When you do that, necessarily the most robust way to think about and transact on identity at scale is through the supply path not through the the buy side. So curated marketplaces, you know, which are just a fancy way of saying loads and loads of PMP deals, libraries of PMP deals are the future of how data gets transacted, um, you know, versus the, you know, the old model of DMP segments and hosted matching. Well, I think this conversation was really great. I, I think I understood everything you said, Drew, and, and a chance to sort of get to step into the future if you will, of what the possibility is, what the pathway is, what the opportunities are for brands on the media side and consumers, uh, that triumvirate um, is really enlightening and inspirational. And, and uh, we can't wait to see what Autogent has cooked up for Advertising Week. You always add a special sparkle to it. And uh, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. And thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Great Minds. Matt, again, so appreciate the opportunity to share our story and to connect with you. And uh, thank you. And looking forward to a big advertising week for Autogen. We'll see you in October. Chaptering and other structural elements for this podcast are powered by Snackable AI. With the ability to unify all content in one place, have AI distill the best insights instantaneously, and share them seamlessly, businesses on Snackable create more relevant value for their audiences faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.